0: on this episode we have ann braden ann is one of my favorite authors and she's also a former vermont educator with a new book out the flight of the puffin flight of the puffin truly feels like a middle grades book for our time the story of four completely different middle school students, in completely different circumstances, in completely different areas of the country, and how random acts of kindness wind up tying them together. This book is based on Anne's own experiences in responding to the 2016 election and all that came afterwards, by putting massive amounts of love out into the universe, and perhaps in your mailbox. Listeners, we are delighted by this, all of it. Now, a quick content note. Around the 46-minute mark of the episode, Anne speaks briefly of a terrible experience her child had at the dentist. If you'd like to skip anything related to dentists or child harm, rip yourself forward two minutes and she's done. This, dear listeners, is Vermont Ed Reads, a podcast by, for, and with Vermont educators talking about books... And the ways they help us make innovative, student-centered school change. I'm Jeannie Phillips. Let's chat. Thank you so much for joining me. And tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: I'm so excited to be here. Any time I get to spend with you is great time.
0: Ooh, um, same for so- me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um, I used to be a middle school social studies teacher, um, and then I turned to writing. Um, and uh, I, the uh, Flight of the Puffin is my second book. My first one was uh, The Benefits of Being an Octopus. And so I'm so excited to have books, plural,
0: <laughs> now. Congratulations on your newest book. And we should also say, because the primary audience for this podcast is Vermont, that you're located in Rattleboro. Brattleboro, Vermont. Um, so before I get to anything else, how's Zoe doing?
1: oh she's having a rough year (laughs) gosh i mean she's i i think i think about the kids like zoe who are trapped in their little four-walled spaces with not awesome family relationships and i've been thinking about them all this year and you know it's one of those things where if we didn't get it before we better get it now yeah.
0: Zoe, listeners, I imagine most of you know, is the main character of the benefits of being an octopus. And I've been thinking about Zoe too, because she ha- was already suffering under economic hardship and in diff- difficult family circumstances and the stress and pressures of COVID have to have made that harder for yeah. Zoe and kids like Zoe. I've been holding her in my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Well, thank you for that book. That book has been such a gift to, to me and to Vermont educators. I know it's being, has been used and is being used all over the place and um, kids are loving it. So thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Um, And I also know you're a great reader, as many writers are, as most writers are. What are you reading now?
1: Ha. Well, I am in the middle of um, the burnout book about the stress stress cycle, because as we all know, um, there's a little bit to be stressed about these days, and um, I am someone that often internally processes my stress, so I will seem all happy, and I feel all happy on the outside, and then I have developed all these chronic stress-related <laughs> medical issues, and so I'm like, okay, I've got to figure this out before um, I have a new one, so... So it's a, uh, it's very good about releasing the stress cycle and creating opportunities for your body to recognize that you are okay. So I've been working through that one.
0: I listened to a podcast about that book and just the oh. hour long podcast I listened to was so helpful about um, hugs and exercise and all of the ways you can let your body know that it's okay again.
1: Yes, and I was I'm not an exerciser and so I Um, I've never been like oh yes exercise makes me feel good but now I'm like doing slow qigong is telling my body that I'm okay (laughs) and it's just as good as other exercise
0: (laughs) for me that's so interesting for me one of the ways that I manage stress is reading Mm
1: -hmm. like reading
0: to me being engaged in a book is deep relaxation right like living through story so no I love that so thank you for your books, because they relax me. <laughs> and let's, let's jump into The Flight of the Puffin, which is such a delight. Oh, my goodness. Would you introduce us to the four characters in the book, Libby, Jack, Vincent, and T?
1: Sure. Um, do you want me to read or just tell you?
0: about them?
1: Both. OK. Whatever
0: works for you.
1: I, I think I will read first. I'll just read a page of each of their chapters. Perfect. So the book goes through these four different uh, perspectives and they all live in different places. Um, and, but this is all happening on the same day. Libby. This is gonna be the best sunrise ever. I slather on more orange paint, catching the drips with my paintbrush and mixing them into the hot pink. I swirl it around and around. I paint brushes like the band teacher conducting. I don't play an instrument, but I've seen him waving his arms when I peek in the band room. I dip my brush back into the can and make even bigger circles, then add extra dollops above like sparks flying up. I love how the sparks look. I know that's not how people usually make sunrises, but there's fire involved, right? I add more on the other side. I have to. There's too much joy inside me to not. I step back. I knew this would make me feel better. Now, time to add the yellow. I kneel down and pry the lid off the can, a blazing inferno just waiting to be unleashed. That's when I hear footsteps and Principal Hecton's voice. Libby Delmar, what have you done to that wall? All right, that's Libby. She was not supposed to be painting a mural on the side of the hallway. Okay, we're gonna now move to Jack. Joey is tugging my shirt again. Jack, he says. I stop dribbling the ball and squat, squat down next to him on the blacktop so I can hear him over the shrieks of the other little kids. What's up, little man? He points. Up. Two more points. Joey doesn't say many words when he's focused on something. I put the basketball in his hands. You ready? He grins. He's ready. I spin him around so he's facing away from me and I lift him toward the rim. Here comes Joey for the dunk, I yell. I can feel Joey's ribs through his shirt as he squeals and tips the ball into the hoop. He's the same size my little brother Alex was and just as focused. I set him down on the blacktop and he runs after the ball. I know he's gonna wanna go again. The blacktop is finally clear of snow and he's determined to get to 10 points this recess. I glance at Todd and Sturgis who are waiting for me to come play football, but they'll have to wait a little longer. That's Jack. He lives in a a rural um, area in Vermont with a tiny two-room schoolhouse for a K-8 school. There's 17 kids in the school. All right, next is Vincent. He's in Seattle. I settle onto the floor behind the locker room trash can with my math notebook. Only a few more weeks until we get to the geometry unit. I've been teaching myself geometry online, but it's not the same as having Mr. Bond explain it. I turn to a fresh page in my notebook and start drawing triangles. triangles. Triangles are everywhere you look. There are triangles in the floor tiles, in the metal support beneath the locker room benches, even the people in the school form a triangle. One side is the popular kids who are good at PE and looking cool. Another side is the kids who want to be like the popular kids but aren't quite as good at those, that stuff. And the third side is the creative artistic kids who don't care about being popular and are instead cool in their non-popularity. Everyone knows where they fit. My mom wants me to be one of those creative kids. She runs an art supply store where we live in Seattle and she's got short purple hair. She even named me Vincent after that starry night artist guy, Van Gogh. But I didn't get those genes. I guess when my mom was looking through the sperm donor's profiles, she didn't think she'd need to choose someone artistic. She thought she'd have that part covered. She was wrong. The other kids at school form a triangle, but me, I am a point in space. All right, so that was Vincent. And then T. Wet concrete, sirens, shadows, never safe to sleep, but so very tired. Pico snuggles up, her fur warm against me, follow her breath, breathe with her, trust her, only her, one breath at a time, still here.
0: Thank you for that. I wanna, oof, I wanna walk through each of these characters if that's okay and go a little deeper. Because I loved these four kids so much, and they, I loved that they all had flaws. (laughs) And I, um, so, like Libby, for example, um, at the beginning of the book, she shares that um, she's being bullied uh, by um, another girl for her awesome rainbow outfit. Those are her words. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I'm just going to read a little bit. It's right after what you read on page three. And I get that girls aren't supposed to give other people bloody noses. Instead, everyone should be like model student Danielle who fights the right way by convincing the entire softball team to stop talking to me. So that even Adriana Randall now walks past me without a word as if we were never spent nights, sorry, as if we've never spent nights sprawled on pillows and giggling on her bedroom floor. I want to unpack this a little bit. There's a lot in that, in that few lines.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Libby comes from a family where her dad is very much a bully, um, and sees physical force as a good thing in order to keep things the way they should be. And her older brother, um, get in fights all the time. And as long as he won, it was fine with her parents. So that's the family she's in. Um, And, you know, I think it's one of those things where (laughs) there is this double standard about girls, right? Where like they don't get in fights, but then that the fighting that happens below the surface can be far more damaging than one bloody nose. Um, and so I think that there's one of, that, one of those layers is just how, like if a boy had given someone a bloody nose, it wouldn't be a big deal. Um, I mean, that much of a big deal. But, uh, but a girl doing it is like, what kind of bad kid is this? <laughs> um, so I wanted to bring that up a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, she's sort of in this position where she is, she is isolated. Um, she. She's done things the way her parents would want her to. It doesn't seem to be a great way to do things. Um, and, but she's also completely isolated from people who had been her friends. So she's very much on her own.
0: And she, um, she carries her family with her in school. And so one of the things that happens over and over to her again, one of the things that happened, I gotta say that again, Audrey she carries her family with her to school. And one of the things that happens over and over again is she's assumed to be like her older brother and her parents. And because she and her parents grew up in the town, they know a lot about her family. And she's like, but that's not me. That's not who I am. And I wondered about Libby, like, I think this happens to us as adults that we see kids through the bias of our own the lenses of our own bias and how do we get that bias out of the way so we can really fully appreciate who Libby is? Yeah I mean Libby as a
1: character actually um she was the beginning of this whole book because I well I had the idea of having multiple different kids from different parts of the country um and exploring sort of the connections that exist even when we don't think that there's any connection there but I didn't have any Like the characters that I had in mind first just weren't really clicking and so I hadn't started writing um and then I met this amazing teenager Kara, um in Bellows Falls and she it was at a a cross-class dialogue circle through Equity Solutions um and that was a situation where we were in this group that was about being vulnerable and being honest um and so you sort of get to the soul of people so much quicker and she was talking about how you know she was just she was actually talking about how she's trying to convince her parents the about the importance of recycling among other things but everything she was saying it was like she was this flower trying to push up past the concrete and there was just so much joy inside her and life and sunshine and she had so much concrete on top that she was trying to push past. And so that was the seed that grew into this whole story. Um, and so I feel like in that situation, I was able to see her for who she was because there was trust built and she felt like she could be honest and um, she felt she, like she could really show who she was. Cause I think a lot of times and certainly this was the case for Zoe and the benefits of being an octopus. Kids are not gonna show adults who they truly are on the inside unless they feel incredibly comfortable. And those kids that need to the most often do not feel comfortable um, in most school settings. And so so I think that, that um, getting to those places where there's an intimacy um, and trust is the only way to be able to really, know exactly what's going on below the surface. And then if you, like, if you can't get there, because we can't always do that, you just have to assume assume that it's there if you had the opportunity to be there.
0: Well, and I, I so appreciate that answer. And I'm thinking about how um, focusing, thinking about Danielle and that nobody picks up on her meanness also erodes the trust of students who are like, I can't really show who I am because nobody will believe it anyway.
1: Right. Right.
0: Uh, So I love that Libby is based on a real person, Kara. Does Kara know?
1: Yes, she does.
0: Oh, how wonderful. And so you began with the passage about Libby painting a mural on the school wall. And um, so it's like, I think the next day that she's meeting with the principal or later that day. And the principal says, tomorrow during in-school suspension, you'll be repainting that wall white again, like it's supposed to be. And that totally brought back for me when I was a school librarian at Green Mountain middle and high school, a student named Lilith who painted a mural. She was a high school student who painted a mural on the girl's bathroom wall and made it beautiful. And they they totally checked the security footage and realized it was her. And the custodians painted over in drab green and my heart broke, right? Like uh, Lilith's mural was beautiful. And then it was back to whatever drab color it had been. And um, I guess I'd love us uh, listeners and me to quietly consider who gets to decide how things are supposed to be in schools and in the world and who doesn't. Because I really want Libby to decide (laughs) what goes on that wall. I want students to decide. Yeah,
1: I think it's one of those things where I mean, and that's certainly a theme throughout the book of just um, power. And I don't mean this in the bad way, like power was a theme and the benefits of being an octopus too, in terms of like Lenny would always see things through, do you have power do you not? And that's part of part what's created the problem. But, um, but the flip side of that is that kids so rarely have any control over their lives. Um, that's meaningful. And gosh, when you get a taste of it, it changes everything. It changes how you look at yourself. It changes how you look at your actions in the world. Um, And then those actions change the people around you. And so I I feel like I, I was this kind of teacher too. And actually I got, I had, I got pushback because of it, but I always wanted the kids to have as much say as I could. Um, And it meant like a slightly more chaotic learning experience like from the traditional way of looking at things. I did not have my vocabulary list planned out ahead of time because I wanted the kids to be able to have a say in where we were going during that day. And, um, and And I really still feel like the times that students have ownership over something are the things that they remember um, and the things that they learn the most from.
0: Yeah. Agency.
1: Yes. That's, that's the positive word of power.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, and there's a lot of agency in this book um, for each of these characters. And so we'll get to that, but I I want to, I want to move to Vincent because like Libby, he's really struggling also Um, with being who he is rather than who folks think he should be Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had actually bookmarked uh, the page that you read from about um, him um, thinking about how how he doesn't quite fit in at school but also how he feels like he's disappointing his mother because Mm -hmm. he's not who she wants him to be right how does a kid like vincent right like how does he make himself seen and known in the world
1: yeah well i mean it's one of those things that the mom in that book i think i drew from me <laughs> a bit like she's very well intentioned but she you know she wants him to be able to be creative and do things that are fun and he's like no i just want to do more math and she's like i don't understand <laughs> you know and and so I do feel like we have to, I mean, there's, there's the song about how our children are not our children and, you know, and, and nothing like being a parent to <laughs> see that in a whole new way of just like, we kind of get out of the way, uh, like our own expectations, right? Um, we have to get out of the way of what our children are. Um, and so many different, there's so many different ways that that can play out, but, um, but yeah, I think for him he's really bumping up against gender stereotypes of like this is what a boy should be or this is or if you're not that kind of boy then you should be this creative like there's only those two options like be the stereotypical athletic boy or um or you know be countercultural <laughs> and find power in that and you know yeah when you don't find when you don't see yourself anywhere else um it's that he also. I mean, all of these characters feel very alone in their own way. And for him, he, he, the what happens soon after the part that I read is these boys come over and are giving him a hard time about he's wearing this like fourth grade rec baseball shirt, which he is not a baseball player. He hated playing baseball, um, and they're like, "Oh, I bet you're so sad you can't be on the baseball team anymore." And he's like, "No, I'm not. Like, why do they think that? But because it's his shirt that." Um, triggered that, he's looking for shirts that are going to say, this is who I am. Um, And he ends up finding this very tight uh, button-down shirt with a puffin on it at the back of his closet that he wore to an event um, that was about Catherine Johnson's new book, her autobiography, because she is his hero. And um, from Hidden Figures, the awesome uh, uh, calculator mathematician who helped send uh, rockets to the moon. And so um, so it's funny because Linnie, Libby starts off having this problem because she was bullied for, she was totally wearing her own stuff. <laughs> and, um, and there was problems with that. And so then um, Vincent's like the next step of the way being like, hey, I'm going to wear my own weird clothes. <laughs> and, and yeah, it doesn't necessarily go well.
0: Well, there's this whole thing that I think um, both of them are really dealing with that I think of as, um, oh, I had the word on the tip of my tongue. What's the word I'm looking for? Self-determination, be who they are. And neither one of them wants to fit in. And I think the adults around them, and I, I think I could fall into this trap too, is like, just make it easier on yourself, fit in but I think kids are right in saying, I don't need to fit in. I need to be who I am. And so whether that's an artist who wears all the colors of the rainbow at once, like Libby or, um, Vincent with his puffin shirt with also that also has triangles at the corners, which is triangles are a big shape for Vincent. Um, I love that. (laughs) Um, it's about, um, really accepting themselves who they are and showing up unapologetically as they are and and not caring what other people think about that
1: right and i feel like so most of the characters are seventh graders and i feel like i remember in sixth grade i was wearing crazy clothes and big earrings cuz oh my gosh i just got in my ear pierced i had these giant snake earrings and like really out there very like big prints and everything and then um seventh grade it was just like and like the buttoning up of everything because I was so afraid of not fitting in um and I feel like the kids that have the confidence to just continue being themselves is like we have to be like that is such a special thing. We need to be nurturing that and like, yeah. maybe not fanning the flames because you don't want it to get too out of control, like but before they're ready, but like you want to make sure that you are meeting them where they are. Um, and I don't know, like I did in seventh grade, I did wear mismatched socks all the time, but they didn't really show up past my, although my jeans were like, it was a weird time in the eighties. jeans. Were- <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I remember. <laughs>
1: But but that was the, like, as far as I would go, my mismatched socks is like my reminder to myself that I was different.
0: Yeah. Well, and and what does it look like in classrooms and schools to celebrate that difference instead of encouraging conformity? And how might we um, sort of see that as strength?
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, this is uh, only tangentially related. But one of my favorite units when I was teaching social studies was we would do um, a a unit focused on social norms during the Jim Crow era and um, looking at like the power of social norms and what was put in place by law and what was put in place just by expectation. And then having them look at their, their own social norms of what is expected um, in their own school and what are, what are things that would push back against those um, against those norms. And I remember getting kids to start wearing weird clothes as part of like this experiment where they're like, I'm gonna wear really high socks over my jeans. And it was some, you know, it was, I remember in this case, it was a popular kid who honestly could do whatever they wanted. And so it became a new trend, but it was like one of those things where if we look at it in our own lives, of what is this this social norm expectation like, we realize it's not us, it's, this, it's the system that we're in. Um, and then if we can we can separate, then you can sort of step back and see it for what it is and realize that you don't have to be a part of it if you don't want to be.
0: This sounds like a fabulous um, lesson in criticality and teaching kids how to be critical of social systems, right, and structures. And so I'm on a bit of a Goldie Muhammad kick. And she writes about that, about, um, uh, criticality as a lens to engage students in all the time. Right. In fact, I have a podcast coming up on that book that she wrote. And, um, And so what I'm thinking about is how powerful that is for kids to experience that in that way. And I'm also thinking about the four eyes of oppression, this idea that you might have this ideology of white supremacy Mm -hmm. and how it shows up in institutions as Jim Crow laws, but then how it shows up interpersonally between people is what you're talking about now in these norms, and then internally the message it sends to individuals. And so I, I just love that and the way you're putting that together fabulous
1: you just put it together in such a nicely organized
0: that I needed that (laughs) (laughs) we'll we'll teach together again (laughs) um well I have so many things uh from wanting to start singing the sweet honey and the rock song you mentioned and on but let's let's keep going with our characters let's talk about Jack because Jack's doing some important thinking and working about his school. And I found that living in Vermont, and he's in Vermont, and given our school consolidation efforts, I found Jack's story really compelling. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I am, I'm a very
1: big fan of small schools, even if they're not quite as efficient as others. And I just feel like, especially in the, well, I don't, I think every, at all years, community is so important, and what Jack and his school have, they have this incredible community, and he's like the top of the food chain, he's very different than Libby and Vincent, who are sort of the fodder of bullies, he is, he's not a bully, he's just this, like, sec, he's almost like a a backup teacher for the other teachers, because he's one of the older kids, he's super responsible, and he really sees this, he really has ownership over school and um, there's a, a lady from the State Department that comes, not State Department, State Department of Education, um, that comes and is sort of looking at the school from a very critical lens and checking boxes and um, they don't seem to have wood chips and things like that and they um, and they also don't have a gender-neutral bathroom which Jack has never even heard of. Um, and so he is sort of, he, he is the first to really be like, I'm gonna do something about this in part because he's in a place of leadership um, to start with. Um, and his focus at the beginning is saving the school and making sure that, it, um, that they can keep being a community just the way they are. Um, but as we see, is, Sometimes if things are good for you the way they are, doesn't mean that they're always good for others. So
0: um,
1: yes, there's thinking involved.
0: So um, the thing that Jack reminded me of is this program that my organization, the Tarrant Institute um, has documented at the Cabot School, a tiny little school. And I actually did a school visit there, I believe. Oh, they're fabulous. and. Um, they have a program called Cabot Leads where each student gets some sort of job that they're interested in. And I think the thing about that program, the the hope that we have for a program like that is that every kid feels like school can't run without them. Yeah. Like they're so important. And Jack has that feeling, right? Like school literally can't run without him because he he has important roles with the younger kids. He has, um, so school is a, is, is reciprocal he's not just seen as like we're gonna fill the bucket of your head but rather like you need you, we need you here you're mm-hmm. important and that fosters the sense of ownership in him that's really beautiful and I love that in the novel he goes and presents to the school board what I also love is that it's not just a simple shiny moment he gets caught up in something bigger. I don't know how much we want to give away, but he gets caught up in something bigger and has to find his way out. He gets caught up in a controversy and he gets aligned with a side he doesn't want to be aligned
1: with. Right. Right. And I think that that, um, it's interesting because I, I was recently doing a, um, virtual school visit about the benefits of being an octopus. And they were talking about, Zoe seeming to find her voice when she's sort of thrust into this debate of which side are you on about guns? And I am just now realizing it's similar for Jack where suddenly he's thrust into a debate and he has to vocalize his opinion that is not like, not the side that he's being um, linked to. And so sometimes that is what forces us to do some deep internal thinking about, well, what do I think if it's not that?
0: And, and what does it mean if I think differently than my family members or than people I love? Which right. I think a lot of young people are going through that struggle of like, they're doing, I know that there are kids all over Vermont doing really meaningful learning about things where they have to go home into homes where the the ideas and thoughts being considered are in opposition, right, to some of the values at home. And what do you do when kids are exploring their values? And they, what do kids do when their values, they have to navigate that tricky thing. And I, I think it's really important in schools for us to keep that in mind, um, so we know how to support students well to know students well enough to know how to support them as they develop their own thinking yeah and I mean pro- provide the- them those opportunities to really dig into those things they're really interested in because it's their birthright it's their it's their um, that's what we want is for them to develop their own thinking
1: right and and that's I mean I, I'm realizing also now that this was the issue that was the seed to start the book like uh, Um, Kara talking about trying to convince her parents how important recycling was, right? It was coming from someplace outside of her family, and she had internalized it, and she got it, and she's like, climate change is really important, and it was, this was completely in opposition to her parents, and so she was trying to navigate that, and she was looking for advice about that, and that's, so that, yeah, that is, like, such a, um, it's a weighty issue you know you because you want you don't want to say you go against your parents but you want kids to be able to think for themselves regardless of teachers or parents you want them to be able to form their own opinions based on their own experiences and what they've learned and be able to stand in that
0: yes i do want that <laughs> so um it each of these young people is is sort of coming to themselves as who they, who they are, what they believe in, and what they have agency over. And um, T is as well, but all of T's agency is just going to surviving as who they are. Mm-hmm. And you write T in a completely different way than the other characters, and I wondered if you could talk about that.
1: Yeah, I am... Um... So, T is homeless and living on the street. And I, my one of my very first jobs after college, I was waitressing and at a pizza restaurant. Um, And my other job was working at a drop-in center for homeless teens in Seattle. And I, it's actually one of the experiences, it's the experience that led me into being a teacher Um, in part because, the way this the drop-in center was set up, it was very hands-off. It was very, you are there to provide food and services of um, like medical supplies, but you're not to engage at all. Not There's no like back and forth talking, um, which I understand, I respect that. So people can just come in without any thought that someone's gonna try to tell them wh- what they should be doing. Um, so I understand that, but it also, It was hard to have zero involvement of these kids that i was watching and not being able to do anything to help um other than feed them um and so so it was a it it was a important um point in my life but also um watching you know sitting there and watching all these kids they had so much in common with each other just in terms of surviving on the street. It was just, it, this was not a state, this was not a shelter. This was just drop in, in the afternoon and um, in the evening a little bit, but uh, there was so little talking. Like there was such silence in that room. And I just, you know, it was just testament to how big a wall they had, they had each built around themselves for protection and how much effort basic surviving takes um, when you don't have any of the supports that other people have. And so, so when I was writing T's chapters, everything was through that lens of just intense survival and you don't have lots of chatty words <laughs> if you're in that space. And so, um, so they're much more, they're minimalist um, because of that. And just to get back to what you were saying also, I realized that um, you're talking about how the other characters are sort of figuring out who they are and T already has figured out who they are. Um, so T's on the other side, but dealing with some of the consequences of that. Um, and, I, and, and T is older um, also, so it, it make sense but um, I hadn't quite realized how they you know how T is just at this different point in the journey than the
0: others oh I so appreciate that and I love how you're still leaving a lot of mystery here for our listeners um, thank you for going in deep with your four characters um, I want to talk a little bit about a really what a seemingly small moment on page 53. Uh, I don't know if you want to read it or if you'd like me to read it. Um, it might start on 52.
1: Ah, uh, Yes.
0: Um, maybe start with I won't go.
1: Um, yeah, this is, a, this is Libby's chapter and she's walking home from school and she sees this boy clinging to a bench outside the dentist's office. I won't go, he cries. Joseph Sebastian Kelly, you let go this instant, his mom orders. But I'm scared, he wails. We came all this way, his mom starts to pry his fingers off the bench. Don't be such a crybaby boy looks up at her, his eyes wide, and I know exactly why. Now even she can't be trusted. I watch as she carries him screaming into the dentist's office and I sink down onto the bench, running my hand along the part where his little fingers were clinging. I wish I could run inside and tell him that I know what it feels like to look up into the eyes of the person who is supposed to love you most and wonder if they do. I pull out my index card that tells me that I am amazing. I let out a long breath as I look at it. He needs it more than I do. I fish out one of the colored pencils for my bag and write in little letters along the ridge of the mountain and you are not alone. I look around for where to leave it. The bush next to the bench is the one with the closed up buds from this morning, but not all the buds are closed up now. One glorious purple flower has burst forth. I settle the index card in the bush next to the flower, right where he, right where he'll see it when he comes out and skip the rest of the way home. Even if, even though I don't have the amazing index card in my backpack, somehow I'm a whole lot lighter on my feet.
0: Mm. So I cried when I read this, it broke my heart. and um, And I could see it from both points, right? I could see it from the mother Point of view because I'm a mother and <laughs> I, have, I have mothered a challenging child, um, but I could see it from this boy's point of view too. And um, whew, I really appreciate uh, people like um, Dr. Bettina Love talking about humanizing education and how do we make spaces where we can show up with our full humanity and the coercion in this section feels really dehumanizing mm-hmm. and, and, um, and it, it reminds me there, there are so many times when young people, small children ex- experience dehumanizing conditions because we demand compliance or we want control over their bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what my question is. I guess I wanted you to know how hard this hit and I wondered if you, if you intended it to hit me and your readers that hard.
1: It's interesting. I, it, it's funny because I'm, I haven't done that many interviews about the book yet. And so I'm seeing things from a different angle than I did when I... And often I will realize where things came from after the fact when other people are asking me about them. And I'm, I'm realizing in this moment that this came from... Gosh, there was a pediatric dentist, in Inky, Ke- on, the, on the other side of the border in New Hampshire that was like one of the only pediatric dentists around and i i've been told because my 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 son was a preemie that he needed to go to the dentist early so when he was like 2 and they sent this nice mailing home about how we should like tell it, make sure make it clear that the dentist is going to be fun and it's going to be you know fine and you know and so i did i did my job as a parent of like really showing how it was going to be fine at the dentist and then the dentist made a complete mockery of what I had said. And it turned into this place where it was like, they would not let my child sit on my lap as a two-year-old. Like I could not, I had, they had to be like strapped down to a um, a bed and like, I, he, like, and everyone was screaming. Like, it was like, it was like a factory of screaming children on beds and I was, so traumatized my son was so traumatized we left and never came back but at the end he's like oh don't you need a toy for see how you see how he's sort of stopping crying as i'm offering this toy it was the most inhumane dehumanizing as you said experience and i i still it, it's been almost a decade and i'm still livid that that is what how they were going to treat children um but anyway but it it was in my soul as a horrible experience and how not to treat children. So I'm sure that that subconsciously was coming right out. It's always, I, I often talk about how my books come from a place of anger. And so now I'm like, not only does the larger concept come from a place of anger, but little bits too.
0: Well, so I so appreciate you sharing that story and like, oh, the, the, the trauma for both you and your son and also the grief of being the person who took him there. It must've been tremendous. I can't help, but seeing this as the other side of the agency coin, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. If we want our young people, even our very young people to have agency, right. To like be um, self-directed learners, to be independent thinkers, to like, you know, do the right thing, we can't also demand compliance of them. We can't also seek to, to control their bodies and their minds.
1: Right. You have control over your body.
0: And from an early age, we need to foster that sense of agency. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't mean that they don't go to the dentist.
1: Right. But it can be done in a way that is supporting their humanity. Yeah.
0: And it's probably messier. Right, than like strapping them down. Right. (laughs) It's always gonna be messier. But the strapping them down at what cost? Right. Yeah. Whew. I just I um yes, I'm I'm a I'm a big uh proponent of self-direction and agency in the classroom, as is the Vermont AOE, right? The whole legislation about Act 77 is about meaningful learning opportunities, students defining the learning they want and need, setting their own goals. And so I'm not sure, I don't believe, I'm not even gonna prevaricate. I do not believe we can do that and focus on compliance and use systems of compliance at the same time. When we use systems of compliance, we're completely eroding agency. And there's so much agency for the young people in this book. And, um, and so the other thing that's in here in this little section, which is so powerful is Libby's kindness.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I know that some of this book must be inspired by your experience in the kindness brigade.
1: Yeah. Is that what it's called? The Kindness Brigade? Local Love Brigade.
0: But oh, local.
1: Because local... it's fierce and <laughs> many.
0: <laughs> local Love Brigade. Could you talk about, for people who don't know, could you explain yeah. the Local Love Brigade? Well, so I said that um, a lot of my
1: big concepts for books come from being angry. And this was uh, uh, something else that happened from being angry. Um So it was after the 2016 presidential election, it's a few weeks later, um, actually early December, and I was feeling so powerless and so angry at all the hate speech that I was seeing grow unchecked. And I had, one of the documentaries I used to show in my classroom was the Laramie Project, which is about um, the death of Matthew Shepard in the 1990s. Part of that is that one of his friends is trying to figure out what to do because the Westboro Baptist Church is coming to protest. And she ends up, have you seen the documentary? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. She, she ends up creating these huge PVC pipe, like extra long arms and then draping sheets over them for uh, like dozen, a dozen people that come together. So they're like these huge angel wings. And silently they march out and they form this powerful silent line in front of the protesters, blocking them from the funeral. And I still get full chills thinking about that scene. It was such a powerful demonstration that regular people are perpetuating the heat, then regular people can push back against it. And so I had that in my mind of like, well, what can we do? If these are regular people shouting horrible things, what can I do as a regular person to push back? And um, I, I kept having one conversation after another, often almost always with women who were just as angry as I was. And, um, and one of the things that came up by Kelly McCracken in Montpelier, she said, what about postcards? And I was like, oh, that's really good. And I was driving home from that meeting and someone texted me to say that the um, Vermont Society, the the Islamic Society of Vermont had just gotten hate mail. And what can we do? And I said, we can send them postcards covered in hearts and show that there may be one person sending them hate mail but we are sending them postcards of love. And they ended up getting 500 or so postcards covered in hearts and there's this great video of the imam coming out with this huge stack and he's like you know if the person who sent that hateful message knew that this was going to be the response i don't think he would have sent it and it was a moving uh, experience for me to realize oh this can work like we can really balance out that original hate and sometimes. In a, even a rise above, so that the the person who was on the receiving end of the hate comes away feeling the love instead. Um, and so, you know, the way I am, I started a Google spreadsheet <laughs> and a Facebook group, and it became the Local Love Brigade. And It ended up spreading all over the country, um, these little chapters in different, like, I think it was like 12 or 15 different states. Um, And it was just such a simple thing of just, you know, if you hear of someone that needs love or would appreciate some support, you can send them a postcard that's, you know, that's decorated um, to show something positive and hopeful and, you know, sunny or whatever it is. Um, And it was one of those things where you often don't expect to get anything back, right? They're postcards, you're not writing your return address. Um, But sometimes we would feel the effects that had gone out from those ripples. And once there um, there was a girl in Los Angeles who had filmed her uncle being taken by immigration officials and we sent love postcards to her school and a month or so later, I got a Facebook message from the principal of that school saying like we're taking our, our seniors that have like they, I think that they are the schools in a pretty rough um, area in Los Angeles and t- to commit to going to college is a huge deal. And so they're taking their seniors who had, commit to go, who had committed to go to college on this trip um, to the Northeast. And he's like, can we come and make love postcards with you? And it was like, oh, my gosh, yes. And so like a month later, the, all these kids piled out of these five vans and we all made love postcards together and sent them to whoever needed it that week and that month and, um, and afterwards a girl came over to me and she's like, that was, you know, my uncle that was taken. And I'm so worried that he's not going to be out in time for me to, to, for, to see me graduate. And And we hugged. And as we were hugging, I just thought, what are the odds that we would be hugging and we would be connected? Like, what are the things that led up to this? And so that's, that stayed with me. And that certainly formed the backbone of this book in terms of looking at how does a, t- a tiny action from a stranger send out these ripples and how it, we are we're all connected whether we see it or not and so yeah it was it's all very much based on real <laughs> real experiences
0: Ooh, that story is so powerful and beautiful and I just have to draw some, a shine a light on some things about it. And one is, okay, can we just forever now talk about love mail? Like, <laughs> love mail is the, like, I want to like, let's retire hate mail as a concept and like replace it with love mail. Yes. Uh, mail has been really important to me during the pandemic and sending packages uh, and um, love notes and receiving them. Has been everything, yeah. um, so uh, so big. Thanks for that concept. I'm it's mine forever. I'm never going to talk about hate mail ever again. It's only love mail. <laughs> the other thing I want to point out is like um, the way that even we as adults have to figure out how to have agency. Sometimes, yes, and I that- mean
1: yes, because that's one of the things where I wanted this to be something that was doable and accessible. And um, because I realized like this was in those, those months before inauguration, there was so much powerlessness. It's like, what can we do? And there's, you have to remember that if you completely give up, like you're out, you can't do anything. You can't make any change. Um, And so somehow we had to find a way to stay engaged and stay connected. Actually, I had done um, my undergraduate degrees in Russian (laughs) um, and I did a lot of, uh, I was just fascinated by a lot of the early Soviet um, literature where, you know, just the, the isolation, you know, very sort of 1984, like in terms of how a dictatorship can come in and create so much fear and division between people that they are unable to take action and unable to come together to organize against the government. And I was, you know, worried that we were going to go in that direction as a country. And so I was all about how do we create connection and stay engaged and stay feeling like we can do something about this, even if it's tiny, because. I Like as anyone who has made the postcards, you know you feel a lot better afterwards. It's it's a pretty therapeutic thing, um, and so so yeah, that was my what really compelled me to action at the time.
0: That um, I've just been doing. Uh, it, you may not know I'm in a doc program, and I've been doing a lot of research about. Um, whiteness and education and um, equity and anti-racism. And it reminds me of a study I read about um, that used this quote that was really powerful to me. And it said that one of the reasons that white dominance or white supremacy remains and stays strong is because white people, even when they say they they wanna challenge the status quo or they wanna end racism, can't acknowledge that they have power.
1: Right, Right.
0: they're powerless, right? And so what you're saying to me is like, we have power. Um, And sometimes it can be hard for us to find our power. And that says two things to me is one is like, remember that we have power. And two is let's flex those muscles with kids now. Let's help kids have agency and develop that sense of power now. And imagine what the world could be if kids really felt their full power if we right. nurtured and cultivated that in students and they have it already it's not that we need to give it to them it's that we need to nurture and cultivate it so they can start getting used to expressing it and using it and growing yeah. it I mean I, and I feel like in some ways they have more
1: power than adults do because I think that they are like if, take for example the um, gun laws in Vermont which I'm intimately involved have been intimately involved with like Grown-ups could only get it so far, but kids were the ones where everyone was going to listen, everyone was going to show up to be like, oh my gosh, these teenagers are telling us that we've screwed up and we've got to fix it. And their voices were a hundred times more powerful than any adult saying the same thing. And so I feel like the, um, not, you know, and then once you recognize that it doesn't go away. Like once you find,
0: oh, I can do something, you always have that, even if you become an adult. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a tricky business because I don't want kids, I don't want adults ceding power to kids because they don't want to do the work, right? right? Like we owe it to our kids to do the hard work. And I want kids to know they have power and to, to develop their agency. And I want to be a part of helping kids feel their full power. Yeah, This book is a great ode to that. I'm so grateful and I, I, it leads me to this question I have about how do you hope kids will engage with this book? What are your hopes for their experiences of reading this book? I
1: am hoping that they send lots of postcards <laughs> after this. Um, and I mean, that's that's the most tangible thing is that I, I want them to have their own experience of, oh my gosh, I can do this too. This does not have to be a fictional experience. That I can say, oh, that person seems like they need help or that organization is doing really good work with people that need help. And I'm gonna, I can send them a note saying that they are amazing. Um, That's the most tangible thing. But generally, I, yeah, I want them to come away realizing that they are not alone. That if they're feeling alone, there's hundreds of thousands of kids feeling the same way right around them. And, um, and that just, you know, the, I mean, I think one of the original impetuses for writing this was to write across political divides, that there's so much humanity, common humanity from a red state person and a blue state person, you know, that it is, um, that, that we need to see each other as humans and caring hearts more than anything else
0: i can't tell you the number of times i have pointed educators to your um, uh, teacher's guide for benefits of being an octopus specifically for your um, activity on bridging divides Mm -hmm. are you going to have an educator's guide for this book I hint I believe, so I wrote all
1: the discussion questions that are gonna be in the read aloud. Um, and I, so there's videos of me saying them all as well as like an actual downloadable discussion questions. It's, it's a discussion question per chapter. So it's a little different. It's just like one question for each one. Um, and, uh, and I also wrote out, um, created th- five different class activities that are in classroom, classroom activity starters that are also videos that are, everything's on my website under the puff and read aloud tab. Um, I mean, everything will be on Monday when <laughs> um, it kicks off on April 19th, but uh, so that exists. I think that there's also gonna be an educator's guide in addition to that, um,
0: but it's a pretty good start for now. <laughs> You are always so generous with educators, and I am so grateful. I loved your last educator's guide, and I'm looking forward. And you had wonderful videos of you reading from that book, too, which I know kids loved. So um, any other hopes for how teachers might use this book in the classroom? Um, I, I
1: really, I mean, I feel like what I write, I write to start conversations and discussions and Opportunities to really gently probe inward and outward at the same time. And so I feel like in terms of teachers and educators, giving the spaces for those discussions to happen um, is the most important thing.
0: Thank you so much for this beautiful book and this wonderful conversation and sharing so much of yourself with us, Anne. I so
1: appreciate it. It was such a pleasure. Anytime, Jeannie, anytime.
0: (laughs) I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Ann Braden for appearing on the show and talking with me about the flight of the puffin. If you're looking for a copy of The Flight of the Puffin, check with your local library. Many thanks to Audrey Holman for all of her behind-the-scenes work on the podcast. To find out more about Vermont at Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. Clearly need more caffeine.